Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, we're talking today our second class period on the Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Pacigalupi, the Hugo and Nebula Award-winning novel. And we're talking about the second half of the, of the novel now. And for the second half of the novel, I want to start off the conversations here by reading an article here that comes out of CNN. Actually, we're going to go through a couple articles. And asking you, what do you think is the relation between this article and the novel? So this article is written by Elizabeth Landau, and it is called, Why So Many Minds Think Alike. Why so many minds think alike. All right. You're in a room with ten other people who seem to agree on something, but you hold the opposite view. You, do you say something, or do you go along with the others? Decades of research search show people tend to go along with the majority view, even if that view is objectively incorrect. Now, scientists are supporting those theories with brain images. A new study in the Journal of Neuron shows when people hold an opinion differing from others in a group, their brains produce an error signal. A zone of the brain popularly called the oops area becomes extra active, while the reward area slows down, making us think we are too different. We show that a deviation from the group opinion is regarded by the brain as a punishment, says Vasily Kluterev, a postdoctoral fellow at the F.C. Donner's Center for Cognitive Neuroimaging in the Netherlands and a lead author of the study. Participants, all female, had to rate 222 faces based on physical beauty on a scale from 1 to 8. Afterwards, researchers told each participant either that the average score was higher or that it was lower than her rating. Some participants were told the average rating was equal to her rating. The researchers then chatted with the participant before suddenly asking the participant to do the rating again. Most subjects changed their opinion toward the average. The two leading theories of conformity are that people look to the group because they're unsure of what to do and that people go along with the norm because they are afraid of being different, said Gregory Burns, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Burns' research, which he describes in the book Iconoclast, a neuroscientist reveals how to think <clears throat> differently, found that brain mechanisms associated with fear and anxiety do play a part in situations where a person feels his or her opinion goes against the grain. Participants looked at projections of three-dimensional objects and had to identify which shapes were similar. As with the new study in Neuron, participants tended to shift their opinion to the majority view. Although in this case, the problems had objectively correct answers. The effect also was more potent, was also more potent in this experiment because the actors in the, were in the room to simulate a group with a shared opinion. 
But brain images revealed participants were not lying just to fit in. Changes in the activation of the visual part of the brain suggest the group opinion actually changed participants' perception of what they saw. One reason behind conformity is that, in terms of human evolution, going against the group is not beneficial to survival, Burns says. There is a tremendous survival advantage to being in a community, he said. Our brains are exquisitely tuned to what other people think about us, aligning our judgments to fit in with the group, Burns said. The most famous experiments in the field were conducted by Solomon Ash in the 1950s. He found that many people gave incorrect answers about matching lines printed on cards, echoing the, correct, echoing the incorrect answers of the actors in the room. But unlike Burns's finding that fear and anxiety relate to this, Ash saw conformity studies, reflections of the people's reliance on one another for knowledge of the world, experts say. The darker side of conformity relates to Stanley Milgram's experiment in the 1960s and 70s in which most people obeyed orders to deliver electric shocks to an innocent person in the next room. As in these studies, subjects caved into social pressure, presumably going against their own previous moral convictions. The research calls into question decision-making bodies that operate by consensus, Burns said. For example, in the United States legal system, Many cases are decided by the unanimous judgment of the members of a jury. You can't separate those judgments from the fact that you have 12 people who have to come to a unanimous decision and have to conform their opinion to each other. So, of course, it will, start, it will, it will distort how they view the evidence, he said. Any type group decision-making process that does not require <coughs> unanimous decisions is like to make a better one, is likely to make a better one, Burns said. That applies to committees in particular. What does it take to break the conformity effect? Ash talked about the power of the minority of one. When a unanimous group pressures the individual, that group is weakened as soon as one person breaks off. Anyone inclined to draw two pessimistic conclusions from this report would do well to remind himself that the capacities for independence are not to be underestimated. Ash wrote in 1955 Scientific American article describing his research. He may also draw some cons consolation from the further observation. Those who participate in this challenging experiment agree nearly without exception that independence was preferable to conformity. So what do we get from this article that relates to The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi? Go ahead. Speak loud so it picks up. Okay, so um, it kind of... Like in, like in summary, it discusses how uh, people are mentally obliged to conform with uh, the majority view without even thinking about it. And that kind of brings us around to what we were discussing last class regarding whether we have any free will or independence of thought. Okay, but now how does it relate specifically to the novel? Meaning, there's nothing wrong with what you said, but... Bacigalupi actually has to enliven this idea somehow with characters that do things in our certain ways. So how does this relate to the wind-up girl? Go ahead. I know one example was when um, the wind-up girl was being... The wind-up girl was um, in the show, like, for all the men in the club or whatever, where they were at. And... Um, 
the people in the men in the club would make fun of her, but afterwards, like every once in a while, one would come back for her. So, like, All right, um, that's true. Let's talk about the men in the club. Actually, the men in the club relates to. Maybe I'll hold off on the men on the club just for a little bit. Let's let's stick with your thoughts about the wind-up girl herself. What about the wind-up girl herself, the actual person? I'm going to come back to what you said about the men in the club when we read another article. Go ahead. What about the men in the? What about the wind-up girl herself? Go ahead. She desperately wants to be with other people who are like her. She desperately wants to meet other people who are like her. Yes, that's true. Yeah. What else? Because she was trained around others like her and trained in a group where they all agreed that the right thing to do is to obey always. She still is of that opinion, even though in a lot of cases it's wrong. It's more wrong for her to submit than it is for her to take care of herself. So she continues to adhere to that that sort of popular opinion that she was... I, I don't know if grow up is the right term, but that she grew up in, even though she's in a place where it doesn't really apply. You're actually raising some really good points. This idea of conformity that you're raising. This is a very interesting point. Um, and you're actually talking about it with response to, even if it doesn't, if it's not good for her. Let's, let's get some more thoughts about that. The wind-up girl. How does she relate to this article dealing with conformity? That was a good thought, but let's let's keep on going. <coughs> Think freely now. Just let your mind roam. Go ahead. Well, this idea of conformity uh, can be seen in the the opinion of the Thai people uh, towards the wind-up girl Emiko. Um, there is basically a consensus that she is something to to be like reviled against. Like she is something that is unnatural. So. <clears throat> the those who actually have like some sort of soft spot for, or at least uh, like the men in the club who return to like spend a night with her, they have to keep that a secret because they feel as if uh, their feelings were are wrong because they have been cultured to believe that they are wrong. Yeah, there is definitely, and even when she talks with them and explains that she's has feelings just like everybody else. They dismiss that. So there's an issue of conformity with respect to her. And what would happen if one of the ties, according to the novel, and of course, Bajilugalubi at the end of the novel does explain that he's not trying to characterize Thailand or Thai people, uh, and he gives a whole bunch of other authors that you know accurately characterize it. He just placed the novel in Thailand. So according to, uh, but, but according to the novel, uh, what would happen if a Thai went against that and said she was great? Um, well, they would probably be ostracized from their society. Uh, I believe they probably even face like, uh, some sort of disciplinary measures. Yeah, she probably would. And at that time in the society, uh, and, and, the way that it's, and it's the way it's placed in that future time, the disciplinary measures would probably have been very severe. <laughs> so, yeah, so that level of conformity is huge. But let's talk also about the wind-up girl herself and this issue of conformity. 
Go ahead. She wants to conform into society when she's not in the club. I guess even when she is in the club, when she's out in public, she has to try really hard to control her movements when she's walking and her voice when she speaks so that she doesn't betray herself as someone who can't conform no matter how hard she tries to. Okay. Now, what if she's with... Okay, go ahead. You say Um. Well, I think the fact that like the way everyone relates to her kind of indicates that she's a perfect example of what would happen to a person in that um, survey or that kind of example that we read about in the article, where if you don't conform, like the way people view you is very harsh. She's different and she's viewed very harshly. Um, and that's kind of like she is like a living example of people's fears of what will happen to them if they allow their differences to show. That's a good point. Um, that's a good point. I want to push this a little bit and more in a different a different direction. That's definitely there. Um, but the wind-up girl and the issue of conformity. What is Bachi Galupi saying about that? Go ahead. Do you have your hand? Do you have your hand raised? Or? No. No, I'm just okay. pondering it. The issue of conformity and the wind-up girl. Where does she want to conform? You're thinking about it in terms of the larger mass and trying to blend in with the larger masses. But what about her patron? Stand up. Talk. Answer me. What happens when someone, like her patron, shouts at her, or anybody shouts at her to do something? She wants to conform to their demands. She wants to conform. Is that correct? No, she's instinct, her instincts force her to conform. I think sometimes she does want to conform. I think want is the right word in some situations, especially earlier in, in the novel. In some situations, yes. Because she doesn't start to not want to conform until like three quarters of the way through. Hmm. Okay, okay, good, good, good. Well, that's in her design. It's not that she wants to, it's that her, her nature by design is to pursue and then obey a master. And so commands are, I mean, they trigger part of her uh, nature, if you want to call it nature. How hard does she have to fight in order to not conform? Hard. Really hard, right? It's almost impossible. She can't do it until she knows, because I think, going back to whether or not she wants it, I think the only reason she ever wants to conform is when she thinks she can get to the north if she conforms. So it's like a broader, it's like a, a means to an end, and once she knows that that's not going to happen for her. Once he makes it really clear that she's not going to get there no matter how much she okay. conforms to his demands, she stops wanting to and is able to free herself to fight him. Okay. Now, what happens when the Japanese... I don't know if he's an ambassador, uh, so something like an ambassador or a council, is told that there's a wind-up girl on the loose who's <coughs> killed like five and eight bodyguards plus the... The, the, the protector of the queen and all at once and, and he says it's impossible, she's not a military wind-up, it's absolutely impossible and they said how could it possibly be that she could do that um, what did he say when they finally realized, no I guess it is possible under certain circumstances they could and, and then what does he say about what does he say to who's interviewing him and he says you better do something about this, about this wind-up what does he say about it? What does he say has happened to that windup? What, what does he talk about that windup? He said he's, he characterizes the windup. Amiko, what he characterizes her in such a way, and she says, he says, you better do something because something's happened. 
What does he say has happened to her? And she's gone rogue. Is she went it? rogue. Yep. Exactly. And what does he say? Like whether that's unusual, whatever. What must have happened for her? To, for, for her to what does he say about that? Do you have the page where that happens? Somewhere in the vicinity of three hundred. Around three hundred. Yeah. Is three. it him or is it the wind up that he gives um, <coughs> Kanya? I thought it was Kanya's wind up that says that she must have lost her. her oh no, you're thinking about uh, Hiroko, yeah. which is the which is the one the, which is the one that actually works with Yashimoto, who's a, this counselor type of guy. She says that um, it, she says that it's okay, because I think she's on page. Um, well, well, go ahead. Say it again. He, she says she tells Kanya that it's because she lost her patron and she went rogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how does he characterize her? Go ahead. Was it uh, and I quote: "This one you seek has fallen far from her proper place." Is yeah. That what it? page is that? Uh, Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah. Ah, okay. Hi. Uh, this is the translation made by Hiroko. Yes, it is possible, unlikely but possible, but it would take an extraordinary stimulus to do so. New people value discipline, order, obedience. We have a saying in Japan, new people are more Japanese than the Japanese. Um, circumstances would have to be extraordinary to make Hiroko into a killer. This is what the Yashimoto ambassador person type says. Uh, this one you seek, has fallen far from her proper place. You, de you should destroy her before she can cause any more damage. We can provide assistance. So, what is he actually saying here that's relating to this article that we just read about in CNN, <coughs> dealing with uh, conformity? In order for her to break from conformity, which is the hardwired genetic things to obey, something major had to happen. It was incredibly difficult. What is the CNN article telling us about humans? We're pretty much the same way. We're pretty much the same way. Pretty much the same way, toned down some. Yeah. Toned down some, but we're pretty much the same way. What this article is essentially telling us is that you're all wind-ups. You had the genetic predisposition already, and they can see it in brain imaging. They actually see the spots of your brain going up. When you want to do something that's non-conforming with the group, you actually have a punishment thing going on in the brain, and you can actually see it in the brain scans. That means it's genetically imprinted. So to make this wind-up girl be more obedient, more conforming, so that she can willing to go through a tremendous amount of abuse, all you have to do is to accent the genes that are already in you. So you see, when he's talking about a wind-up girl, he's not talking about some fantasy, he's talking about you. Now, what did we talk about last week? And there was this big argument that, you know, we had free will and stuff like that. What was the article that we talked about on, on uh, the last time? Anyone remember? It was a political science article. Go ahead. What is that? That our political orientation is genetic and inherited. Yeah, your political thinking, whether you're conservative or liberal, is genetically imprinted. And now we find out whether you agree or whether you conform, which is the other thing that uh, Amico does, the wind-up girl does. It's genetically imprinted. Yet they're finding the same things in you. 
And remember we had this discussion about free will, but you know, it was natural then. We're better because it's natural. And I was saying, hey, is that... What are you going to say next? We're better because we were created by God? What's the next thing you're going to say? <clears throat> we're better because we're Americans? We're better because, you know, we're conservative? We're better because whatever? The point is, it's genetically imprinted. I have not gotten a simple good answer from any of you about why you are not all wind-ups. You're genetically programmed. You can't have a, a, a political thought that's not already pre predispositioned in your genes. And the studies are clear as day. The brain imaging scans says, you have to conform. Okay, Amico, the wind-up girl, may be a little bit more severe, but this is what Paolo Gapacigalupi is saying. It's a maybe you're accenting the genes in that one, but it's just a matter of degree. And I have, am I getting, do I have any arguments here that that's not the case? Go ahead. Well, I'd say that, like, it's, it's easier for us to conform, but we can also not conform. Like, you would potentially like, revolts against government, it's like civil rights movement. Okay, um, well, wait a second, let me get this. When you don't conform, what does the argument say, what does the article say about it? It's very difficult. It's difficult, but... It's possible. It's possible, and... <coughs> What's the value of it? Um, it like puts you as an individual. Or? Yes, but what is the value of being able to non-conform? Go ahead. Uh, it's kind of, I believe it's like a trick question because you want to be able to say that we're able to not conform to society, but when we conform to society and we go to college and do all this stuff, it makes it, our life easier, and then we decide we okay, want to be different. Okay, but what happens when you don't conform? What does the article say about the value of that? I mean, the value goes up when you don't conform. But what else? It says more than just goes up. How many of you, when you were reading the story about Amico, were saying, just stop doing that, break loose, stop doing the conformity? You're being sexually abused, you're being a... And that sexual abuse stuff is really no different than what you get in the prostitution community all the time. The prostitutes can run free of their pimps all the time, but they don't. They don't. They stay in. They stay linked. They stay linked. It's almost like a cult brainwashing. Police have to actually, have to actually go in, arrest them, get them out, arrest the pimp, put the pimp in prison, and get the girls into a, a, you know, like a deprogramming thing to get them to stop thinking that way. Some girls, very rarely, but sometimes uh, in California, they run away and go into Las Vegas and go up and down the roads that have, uh, you know, brothels just to get away from the, the pimps, the sexual abuse. The point is, it becomes to the point where they can't get out of it mentally. So, these genes are already in there automatically. And when you see someone like that, and if you're a police officer, a number of my friends are police officers, when I talk to them about the, the problems with some of the, the girls they have to pick up on the streets, they're really sympathetic. They're not like angry with them. And they say, you know, it's, they all have kids. They actually get arrested. They get put in prison. They get fed better. They come out nice. They look healthy. And then they get back out and the whole cycle starts all over again. It's imprinted into their brain. And he says, you know, we try to actually get them out. But what's really needed is huge amount of deprogramming to get that to stop. How many of you were reading the novel with, with Amiko, the wind-up girl, and saying, 
just stop, just stop, run away, get out of there. Don't put up with that level of sexual abuse and all the other stuff that she was putting up with. You were like rooting for her. And when you get to the very end and she starts behaving more independently and she killed the bad guys, she killed the eight bodyguards, what were you saying in your heart? Yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. You're saying, go for it, girl, go for it, yes. So what is this article saying about the value of independence when it can be achieved? Sort of like an endorphin releaser, per se. Like yes, but what about it? The value of it, the social value, the human value. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's huge. And how many people can do it? Very little. Very few, very few. It's rare. It's valuable because it's rare. Why is a diamond valuable? Because it's rare. Why is gold valuable? Because it's rare. Why is platinum more valuable? Because it's more rare. Why is independence valuable? It is so rare. So rare. And what Bacigalupi is telling us, it's not that this is a crazy story about a wind-up girl. He's telling us that we are the wind-up girls. <coughs> that we're already like this. That's what the whole name of the story is. Now let me go on to a little bit, a different article, so that we can um, talk about this. Because this gets to the point that you're raising that was uh, really good about the guys. Okay, the, the men who were torturing. Amico, okay? Now this is another CNN article, written by Elizabeth Landau again, who writes a lot of articles about n neurological things. Change, charting the psychology of evil decades after shock experiment. Okay, so this is about a classic shock experiment that went on, and then the, sort of the stuff that went on, this sort of, I uh, think about that after that. So, if someone told you to press a button to deliver a 450 volt electric shock to an innocent person in the next room, would you do it? Common sense may say no, but decades of research suggests otherwise. You would do it. In the early 1960s, a young psychologist at Yale began what became one of the most widely recognized experiments in his field. In the first series, he found about two-thirds of subjects. Two-thirds. Now, when they say two-thirds of subjects, think of two-thirds of you. That's a whopping majority of you guys. And I mean guys generically, men and women. Two-thirds of subjects are willing, <coughs> willing to inflict what they believed were increasingly painful shocks on an innocent person when the experimenter told them to do so. Even when the victim screamed and pleaded. The legacy of Stanley Milgram, who died 24 years ago on December 20th, reaches so far beyond that initial round of experiments. Researchers have been working on the questions he posed for decades and have not settled on a brighter vision of human <coughs> obedience, meaning they haven't figured out a better way to twist this weird thing. A new study to be published in January issue of the American Psychologist confirmed these results in an experiment that mimics many of Milgram's original conditions. This and other studies have corroborated the startling conclusion that the majority of people, when placed in certain kinds of situations, will follow orders, even if those orders entail harming another person. It's situations that make ordinary people into evil monsters, and it's situations that make ordinary people into heroes, said Philip 
Zimbardo, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Stanford University and author of The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. Milgram, who also came up with the theory behind six degrees of separation, the idea that everyone is connected to everyone else through a small number of acquaintances, set out to figure out why people would turn against their own neighbors in circumstances such as the Nazi-occupied Europe. Referring to Nazi leader Adolf Eichmann, Milgram wrote in 1974, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? His experiment in its standard form included a fake shock machine, a teacher, a learner, and an experimenter in a laboratory setting. The participant was told that he or she had to teach the student to memorize a pair of words. And the punishment for the wrong answer was a shock from the machine. The teacher sat in front of the shock machine, which had 30 levers, each corresponding to an additional 15 volts. With each mistake the student made, the teacher had to pull the next lever to deliver a more powerful, painful punishment. While the machine did, did not actually generate shocks, and a recorded voice track simulated the painful reactions, the teacher was led to believe that he or she was in fact shocking the student, who screamed and asked to leave at higher voltages, and eventually fell silent, like collapsed. If the teacher questioned continuing as instructed, the experimenter simply said, the experiment requires that you go on, said Thomas Blass, the author of the biography, The Man Who Shocked the World, The Life and Legacy of Stanley Milgram, and the website stanleymilgram.com. About 65% of the, of the participants pulled levers corresponding to the maximum voltage. Do you get that, folks? Let me read that sentence over again. That's horrifying. 450. What's that? That's horrifying. Yeah. About 65% of the participants level, pulled levers corresponding to the maximum voltage of 450 volts. In spite of the screams of agony from the learner, they were recorded screams, but they were like screams of agony. What the experiment shows is that the person whose authority I consider to be legitimate, that he has a right to tell me what to do, and therefore I have obligation to follow his orders. That person could make me, make most people, act contrary to their conscience, Glass said. Because of the revised ethical standards for human research, subject research, this kind of experiment cannot be replicated exactly. But Jerry Berger, the professional professor of psychology at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California, made some tweaks to see if Milgram's study holds up today. His study design imitated Milgram's even using the same scripts for the experimenter and the suffering learner. But the key difference was that his experiment stopped at 150 volts rather than 450 volts. When the learner starts to ask to leave in Milgram's experiment, 79% of the participants who got to that point went all the way to the maximum shock. That's approximately 80%, folks. Okay? To eliminate bias from the frame of Milgram's experiment, Berger ruled out anyone who had taken two or more college-level psychology classes and anyone who expressed familiarity with it in debriefing. The teachers in his recent experiment, conducted in 2006, also received several reminders that they could quit whenever they wanted, unlike in Milgram's study. Okay? The new results, but they didn't quit. <laughs> 
The new results correlate well with Milgram's. 70% of the 40 participants were willing to continue after for 150 volts compared with 82% uh, in Milgram's study. A difference is not statistically significant. Still, some psychologists quoted in the same issue of American Psychologist questioned how comparable this study is to Milgram's given the differences in methods. Uh, the idea of blind obedience isn't as important in these studies as the larger measures about the power of the situation, Berger said. It's also significant that the participant begins with smaller voltages that increase in small dosages over time. That's, it's that gradual incremental nature, as we know, is a powerful way to change attitudes and behaviors. Now we talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment. The idea of circumstances driving immoral behavior also came out in the Stanford Prison Experiment, a study done in 1971 that is the subject of a film in pre-production written and directed by Christopher uh, McQuarrie. Work, um, uh, work on the film will resume in 2009 after McQuarrie's Valkyrie is released, but of course that's long gone, so the film's out now. In this study, designed by Stanford's Limbardo, two dozen male college students were randomly designated as either prison guards or prisoners. And they lived in the basement of the university's psychology building, playing these roles in their respective uniforms. Within three days, participants had extreme stress reactions, Zimbardo said. <coughs> the guards became abusive to the prisoners, sexually taunting them, asking them to strip naked and demanding that they clean toilet bowls with their bare hands, Zimbardo said. Five prisoners had to be released before the study was over. Zimbardo's own role illustrated this point. Because he took on the role of prison ad administrator, he became so engrossed in the jail system that he didn't stop the experiment as soon as the cruelty began, he said. If I were simply the principal experimenter, I would have ended it after the second kid broke down, he said. We all did bad things in the study, including me, but it's diagnostic of the power of the situation. But while ordinary people have the potential to do evil, they also have the potential to do good. That's the subject of Everyday Heroism Project, a collection of social scientists, including Zimbardo, Zimbardo, Zimbardo uh, seeking to understand heroic activity, an area in which almost no research has been done. Acts such as learning first aid, leading others to the exit in an emergency, and encouraging family members to recycle some of their heroic behaviors that Zimbardo seeks to encourage. Most heroes are everyday people who do heroic deed once in their lifetime because they have to be in a situation of evil or danger. So, what do we get from this article that relates to the abuse that was just raised earlier with regard to Amico? Go ahead. Um, can I make a comment on something similar? Please. So, in my complet class last semester, we watched a documentary called Standard Operating Procedure. Yeah, right. Um, about American soldiers in Iraq and how they treated prisoners there. They were basically, because they were in a time of war, um, they kind of suspended all of their morals, and because they were in a different location, they kind of didn't bring with them the values that they had of human life. Um, and they did really horrible things to the prisoners and really didn't even think about it at yeah. all. Actually, that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge issue whenever you send anyone to war. Whenever you send your army to war, there are going to be human rights abuses. Even if the soldiers are good kids that otherwise would never do that stuff because of that. And so you, every president who sends an army to war knows there's going to be, there's going to be stuff like that happening. That's one of the things you, that's one of the reasons that they're, that the United States is 
really negotiating with any place where they send people to work, they say that uh, they don't want any war crime trials coming out of it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is they said, you know, if you want us to stay in Afghanistan, you have to, you know, promise us there are no war crime trials afterwards because these things are going to happen. Yeah. That's actually why there was a documentary. It was kind of to expose the fact that the government allowed this to happen and didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. But there's actually, there's almost no way to stop it from happening mm -hmm. once you send troops. The, the, the troops, basic training is not a deep course in psychology. So police officers used to have this problem, and then they started doing tremendous training on police officers to stop them from shooting first. And you know, to get them to do restraint, to capture the person, and uh, the amount of training that police officers have to go through in order to bring suspects in. I mean, it's so easy for a police officer to run into a problem and then just shoot the person. Well, it's also... To, to get that restraint, however, is tremendous. A lot of their interrogation tactics were also pretty immoral. Exactly, yeah, interrogation tactics. Okay, so let's, let's go back to the wind-up girl. What about the wind-up girl and the, and the abuse that she got? Um, I mean, as far as the abuse go, people, normally what they want to do to people, I mean, she's not s seen as a person, she's seen as a, s a slave, and she's seen as being there for certain purposes, and that's why people treat her. Okay, that's an important like point do. you're raising. So the very first thing that happens is that there's a psychological detachment between the people who are doing the abuse and the person who's being abused. They like, like there's a wall, like they're not really a person. Okay, that's an important thing. Now, where do you see it in life's experiences where you see people doing that all the time? Go ahead. I mean, going to her example where she talks about, um, like, sort of brings together, um, perhaps these men in the military, they see these just Afghanistan, Afghanistani people as they, they sort of identify with the cultural and racial differences, perhaps, and sort of justify the treatment of them that way. And that can sort of compare to how in the novel these people just don't identify with the line of girl on a like a genetic level. They think she's not human, not similar to them. So I also think that another way that that's like that we've seen that in real life yep. kind of is like I keep thinking of um, the Holocaust and the people who ran the concentration camps because. In that case, it, there isn't even that excuse. I mean, it's kind of the same pseudoscience that that justified that justifies how different Amico is and how different the Jews were from everyone else in Germany. Because I mean, at at the basic level, it was a genetic it was a genetic way to justify it. Yeah. It just wasn't that they were created, but it was like, well, they're they're not as we're superior, so we don't have to feel any it's kind an of emotion. It's an about. exact comparison. You're making a really good point. A very good comparison is if you read Mein Kampf, Hitler's treatise on the Jews. If you read Mein Kampf, it's clearly clear there is a genetic difference between Germans and Jews, and the Jews are not real people and have to be cleaned out. There's no difference between that type of thinking and the type of thinking that was going on with with Amico. She's just not a real person. They said she didn't have a soul. Now, what about these people in the Holocaust that killed six million Jews and 20 million Slavs? The thing that was so unusual about the Holocaust 
is not that there were so many people that died. There have been situations where many people have died, but it was the systematic modern way in which the cruelty was administered. Building gas chambers, building machines, and systematically in like an assembly line process, torturing and killing those people. The level of detachment was enormous. But you're not talking about a couple people in a bar. You're not talking about a prison system with a few people. You're talking about millions of Germans and six million Jews. I mean, that's a lot of people. What does that tell you about human nature? And what is Paolo Gocigalupi saying about human nature? Go ahead. Well, I was <clears throat> going to comment on the uh, similarities between uh, how they execute the windups, which they refer to as mulching them, mulching. and the, mechan you know, the mechanical industrial nature of execution, how it compares to the uh, industrial nature of the Holocaust. It's as, as if um, they're neither the, the Jews and Slavs or these windups are worthy of like a, an execution in the method that a normal human would receive. So they have to, uh, they're basically itemized and mulched or exterminated. Yeah, they're not talking about killing somebody with uh, an overdose of, of sleeping medicine just to make them fall asleep. I mean, they're talking about, yeah, probably no anesthesia at all, just like, yeah, mulch them. Um, but what is he telling us? What is Paolo Bajigalupi telling us about? Well, let's first of all go to the bar. When Amico was being tortured by the eight bodyguards to the protector of the queen near the end of the novel. And then afterwards, they wanted her in a private room to redo it again, and that's when she killed them all. How could that have happened? I mean, she was screaming. She was in absolute pain. It's a combination of the detachment and the sort of mob mentality of no one wanting to be the one to stand up and say, hey, this is not right. So the word we were using for it before was conformity, Yeah. the mob mentality. So it was, a, it was a combination, very interesting, a combination of that detachment and the conformity part. Go ahead. I was just going to say the conformity part because I know in AP psychology there was another principle that says people are less likely to stick to their morals if they're in a large group and they see something happening and no one else is saying anything, mm -hmm. then they're more likely just to follow the group and have that mob mentality or not to conform to the rest of the group. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. Adding on to that, um, like in situations of danger, like when someone gets a heart attack or something and a mob witnesses it, a group of people witness someone like in danger in need of help, someone, call, someone says, someone call 911, it's very likely that no one in the mob will call 911. You have yeah. to single someone out to call, yeah. to tell them to call. Yeah. Now let me push you, we're getting sort of the last 18 minutes of the class, so let me push you. What is Bacikalupi saying about that in terms of your internal nature? Meaning he's not talking about people as artificial characters in a book. He's talking about us. So what is he saying about this? this nature. We can connect it to the previous article as well, with the areas of the brain lighting up. Is it that we're just hardwired to... That's exactly right. He's saying that this idea of being able to catch who we are from the person being tortured, the ability then to do that torture, the ability to 
conform with a group that may be involved in the torture. All these scientific studies are saying, that's us, and it's genetically embedded. I have yet to hear a good argument coming from any one of you, other than the idea that we were natural. But if this is natural, this is not. That, that doesn't speak very well for being natural. If we were created by God, that doesn't speak very well. What was he, an underachiever on that day? That's a Woody Allen joke. The point is, it's genetically embedded in us. Our nature is to see things in a detached way. I mean, all you need to do to witness people seeing someone in in a detached way is to go to a strip bar. You go to a strip bar and you see the guys walking up, throwing the dollars at the strippers, and then listen to the conversations. The guys talking about these ladies who they are attracted to. I bet you'll never hear a conversation like, I bet she's a really interesting person with a really great soul. I bet she has kids and really great mom. And That's the type of person I want to, run for, I want to have run for mayor. That's not the kind of conversation you're going to get. Do you understand? There's a detachment that happens as soon as you walk into that place. You don't have to walk far in order to get those conversations. What if you're a jury and you're, you're, you're doing a trial against somebody? You know, the, Bill Maher is really great because he's picked on Florida a lot because Florida has so many problems, racial stuff and everything like that. But the question is, you know, if you're going to get arrested and something's going to happen to you, you know, where do you want to be? Where do you want it to happen? Um, and let's even look at the O.J. Simpson trial. The first O.J. Simpson trial, he had a mixed jury and he was acquitted. The second O.J. Simpson trial, they specifically said, we got to move it out of this place to an all-white area. There could be no blacks on the jury. And then they finally got him on a civil case. Now, I'm not saying whether he was guilty or not guilty. I'm just saying, you know, they knew that in a certain area you were going to be able to get conformity, and in another area with different people, you might not get that same conformity. The person is, the point is, what Bachigalupi is saying is, we got some fundamental problems built into our genes. And the novel uses the wind-up girl as a way to accent those problems, to bring them out, to make them bigger, bolder, stronger, livelier, so that it sticks us in the face. But he's not doing that so that we could say, oh, that's weird, that's not us, that's crazy stuff. He's taking the essential nature of humanity, putting it into a wind-up girl character, and accenting that bringing it bigger, stronger, so we can see it staring in our face. But it's not alien. Does everyone understand? It's not alien. Now, let's get back to the argument that you raised earlier, last week, which is great. The natural versus artificial. What about that one? Let's talk about that for a while. Can we have that detachment with a natural versus artificial? description. Let's talk about the natural versus artificial. Remember that argument? It was a really great argument. You spoke and you said it very well. I was really pleased when you mentioned it because that's exactly the type of things we... Look, even if you don't believe something but you think it would be something that would be contentious, 
Say it. And say it with conviction like you really do believe it. Okay? It's okay to cause trouble. What is the novel telling us about conformity? Ultimately, you're rooting for Amico. Stop conforming. Stop conforming. So if you have an idea that you think would cause trouble, what are you practicing? Non-conformity. Non-conformity. You're actually trying to cause trouble. So if you have an idea and you say, I don't believe this, but I think people would really be upset with it, say it with conviction like you really believe it and so everybody gets really upset with you. <laughs> you got to practice it. If it's genetically embedded into us, you can't just change that genetic embedding. What is the novel telling us about if for Amiko to actually change and become independent? What is it telling us she had to go through? She had to first go through a lot of bad stuff, but then she also had to do what? Well, she killed eight guys, first of all, to her surprise. What else did she do? Somehow overcome her genetic predispositions. How did she overcome those genetic predispositions? Spy. I mean, did she just perhaps finally see, like, just sort of rationalization, sort of finally seeing the big picture? Okay. She she, she rationalized it afterwards, but that was own. after the fact. How did she actually begin to overcome some of these genetic predispositions? Is it because she lost her master? That she yes, that helped. That was she, environmental. She recognized the fact that she had the genetic predisposition and made a conscious choice to, uh, I don't want to say overcome, but to oppose it. What happened before that? She had to conform first. But what happened after the conformity? There was a, there's a middle stop. There's a middle step that I'm trying to push you on. Before she did the rationalization, and after she left the conformity, what was it? Go ahead. Well, it was almost like she couldn't, she had trouble, well, she almost realized there's no hope because she couldn't be with her own people, so that's kind of what she had. Let me put it this way. The first person she kills is Raleigh, remember? She kills Raleigh, the bar owner. How did that happen? She just hit the guy's throat, crushed his, his, uh, his, wind, his windpipe. So how did that happen? Was there rationalization going on? He had just ordered her to go into the room to be with the guys who had just tortured her. Rape turned tortured her. And then she killed Raleigh. How did that happen? It occurred almost like an instinctual response. She didn't think about it. She didn't plan it. She didn't it. think about it. So the behavior had to actually... That's right. It was almost... She had no alternative. The behavior had to happen first. And what happened after that? The rationalization happened after that. Then she went and she killed eight guys. She didn't even know how she killed eight guys. But she moved like lightning. And they were dead. Okay? So the behavior starts changing first. Go ahead. That seems kind of contradictory. Um, we're saying that you have to like act before you rationalize, and that's like an instinct thing. But at the same time, genetics are also what control your instincts. There's a conflict, isn't yeah. there? There's a conflict, and there's that. There's this genetic instinct, training, spontaneous reaction, all combining. Go ahead. Okay, so it's 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 kind of like what I said last week, and that is that it's not necessarily who we are that dictates what we do, but what we do that dictates who we are. 
And the example that you just brought up about Emiko was what she did changed her nature. So that's it was it. that's it. It wasn't it wasn't what her nature was dictating who she was. It was who she just decided to be dictating who she would then be from that on. Great. When she changed her behavior, almost without even thinking, she just killed Raleigh and those eight guys. Then she had to readjust psychologically. The rationalization had to happen. Meaning, the rationalization, the intellectualization of that thing followed the actual behavior change. You get it? So, sometimes the thinking can precede the behavior change. But sometimes the behavior has to change first in order to allow the other things that are genetically programmed to start. So what does this do? Go ahead. I think that's partially also because in the um, article we read, like, uh, being nonconformist is fulfilling. So yes. when you when you have that action, whether or not you think about it first, but when you do something that's nonconformist and you rationalize after you have that action, you're more likely to do it again because it's fulfilling for you to not conform. And you're actually fighting the other fulfilling because initially when you conform, a part goes off in the brain that gives you the fulfilling feeling. And another part goes off when you don't conform that gives you a punishment. <coughs> so you've got to change that response so that when you don't conform, this is getting on to what you're saying, when you don't conform, you feel a pleasure rather than a punishment. That's hard. That's a lot of rewiring to do. So what I'm suggesting for you, did you are you going to raise your hand? Are you raising no, your hand? What I'm suggesting is that you practice here because what Bhatti Kalupi is saying is that you're all wind-ups. You didn't even know it. But when you came into this class, you were so pre-programmed, you didn't even know what to think. You couldn't even think. And what he's saying is activity, physical and speaking activity, will help you break that. Just like Amiko was freer at the end than she was in the middle. And so if you have an idea that you're thinking of and you say, but that's not me and I'm afraid if I say that, people will get upset. That's the genetic predisposition already, already turning on. That's what's going to happen to you every time. So sometimes, we're going to see this when we actually get to Ender's game, where the two, the brother and the sister of Ender actually decide to switch roles. One's liberal and one's conservative, sort of a mean guy. And they decide to switch and argue the opposite case just for the sake of it. Sometimes you should think of that too. If you have an idea that you think would really upset people, here you're in a classroom. Try it out. And see if you can feel the negative genetic feelings going on in the brain that's going to be making you feel like that's a bad thing. People are going to hate me. See if you can get used to the idea of being rejected or thinking or anticipating that you're being rejected. Because what we're getting from the studies is it's programmed in. It's automatic. And in order to be free, you've got to break that stimulus response feedback that's automatically programmed into the brain. You have to get used to the idea of having it fun to, object, to, ups, to upset people. By the way, some of the greatest leaders on the planet are that by nature, meaning they like upsetting people. They can't be leaders otherwise. Unless you, a leader is fundamentally not someone who goes along where the crowd is already going. A real leader who actually changes things and is noted throughout all of history did things that other people were not wanting to do and got other people to finally do that. That's genetically, those are anomalies. Those are genetic anomalies. Go ahead. 
Like, I know in the Wind Up Girl, it talks about how it's, like, genetically uh, meant to obey. Couldn't you also say that we're trained to obey, like, how we're raised, like, our parents? Like, we're supposed to obey our parents. We're That's supposed to obey the old argument. You're so great you're raising it. The idea is, that, is it is it behavioral? That's training? That's environmental? Because of the, because she also had that. Remember her training? Yeah. Uh-huh. Or is it actually genetic? Yeah. That's the big question. So she has both. What would be the argument that you could make about the training? If you're a society that's going to grow up, you're going to train kids, right? What are you most likely going to train them to do? To be good at... Listening to you. Listening to you, but also... To be good at being good at school, right? And things like that. To conforming, to shine. You're not going to train your kids to be, you know, oddballs. Aren't you? So, the behavioral stuff will actually go in parallel with its genetic programming. That's the problem. And then you say, well, it's behavioral. We're just taught that. But in reality, the behavioral and the genetics is all moving in the same direction. And it's hard to separate the two. It's only now that we're able to understand. And remember the study we read last time? That you have twins, identical twins, separated at birth, raised in different environments. They both turn out the same. That was such a shock to political scientists. We thought everything was environmental. We said it's all environmental. And then we found out that the genes were causing it. That's huge. Now look, we have only a few minutes left, so I want to ask you to do something. You know you're all going to write something, and you're going to hand it in, right? So you're going to have to relate it to something about politics. But now listen. I want you to actually listen to this last part in the last couple pages where Amiko, having broken away, fishing, living by herself in an abandoned building, suddenly runs into an old guy and what's in Thai's terms is called a ladyboy, which is a boy that's dressed and acts like a lady, like a transvestite. They're called ladyboys in Thailand. So, um, she initially, actually she finds out later that the guy is the Gibbons guy, the guy who was, you know, responsible for so many of the breakthroughs of genetic engineering that actually ended up in the creation of the wind-ups. So she was angry with him. And then she was yelling at him. And he said, but yeah, but I'm as close to God as you'll ever get because I'm the guy who actually designed how, that's, how the stuff that's in you. And she said, but she wants to break free. Okay? Um, And he's talking to her, and she's yelling at him, and then he says, but your training, Mass, that there were shortcuts in there. Uh, your obedience, I don't know where they got that. A Labrador of some sort, I suspect. I mean, he, the idea of obedience, he got that, they might have got that gene out of a dog. Still, you are better than a human in almost all other ways. Faster, smarter, better eyesight, better hearing. You are obedient, but you don't catch diseases like mine. And he waves at his legs. You're lucky. And Amico stares at him. You're one of the scientists who made me. And he says... Not the same, but close enough. I know your secrets, just as I know the secrets of Megadons and total nutrient wheat. He nods at his dead Cheshires, the cats. I know everything about these felines here. If I cared enough, I might even be able to drop a genetic bomb in them that would strip away their camouflage over the course of generations and turn them back into their su- the less successful version. You would do this? And he says, I like them better this way. And she says, that he, she, she says, I hate your kind. And he says, because someone like me made you? 
I'm surprised you weren't more pleased to meet me. You're as close to anyone ever comes to meeting God. Come on now, don't you have any questions for God? And Amico scowls at him and says, If you were my God, you would have made new people first. And he says, That would have been exciting. We would have beaten you just like the Cheshires. And he says, You may yet. You do not fear the diseases. And then she says, No, we cannot breed. We depend on you for that. Because, you know, the new people are sterile. I am marked also with her hand motions. Always we are marked. as obviously ten hands or a megadont like an elephant. And he waves his hands dismissively. The wind-up movement is not required. There is no reason it could not be removed. And sterility, he shrugs, limitations can be stripped away. The safeties are there because of lessons learned, but they are not required. Some of them even make it more difficult to create you. Nothing about you is inevitable. Someday, perhaps, all people will be new people. Look back on us now the way we look back at the poor Neanderthals. And then she says, You know how to do this? You can make me breed true, like the Cheshire cats? And the old man looks at his lady boy and he says, And then she says, Can you do it? And he sighs, And he says, I cannot change the mechanics of what you already are. Your ovaries are non-existent. You cannot be made fertile any more than the pores of your skin can be supplemented. She then slumps, but he laughs and says, Don't look so glum. I was never much enamored with a woman's eggs as a source of genetic material anyway. A strand of your hair would do. You cannot be changed, but your children, in genetic terms, if not physical ones, they can be made fertile, a part of the natural world. And she says, You can do this truly? And he says, Oh yes, I can do that for you. And then the, eye, the man's eyes are far away considering, and a smile flickers across his lips. I can do that for you, and much more. What's going on? We have. Let's just spend 30 seconds on this, and then you go. What's going on here that's significant to us? We've, let's say we've assumed that we've now discovered that we're genetically programmed, and we're really no different than wind-ups. What about this free will stuff that we're taught in high school? We just threw it out the window. What's going on now? Students essentially saying, I can make you free. I can make you, I can... Okay, now he's saying that, but what's also about Amico. We're the Amicos. What's he also saying about, what's the author also saying about us? That we can free ourselves. We can at least ask to be free. Once we, that's exactly right. Once we have diagnosed our problem, that we're acting a certain way because of genetics. We then have the power to say, if it's just hardwired circuitry, we can fix it. So one of the things that Paolo Bacigalupi is saying is the future of genetics is not only to recognize our genetic limitations, any limitations, anything, and everything that we used to think was just natural, you can think of genetically, but that we can also start thinking about free will and saying, what do we want to change? We can start taking it into our own, into ourselves, and start saying we can start changing ourselves as a species, our future generations, our children. Nothing has to be predetermined. And you can say, is this good? I mean, imagine the debates that would rage in the political circles if you start talking about genetically modifying humans. Can you imagine that? Boy, the Republicans and Democrats would not even get close to that. But that's what Paolo Pagigalupi is saying. Once you recognize that we're already genetically screwed up, then the real question is, can we free ourselves then? 
This is why it's science fiction. It's not today, but it's telling where we're going. Our genes not only bind us, but they can set us free. Anyway, you have something to write? Two and a half pages? A page is no more. And you hand it in on... Actually, we may not have school on Wednesday, right? Yeah, probably not. Definitely classes are canceled tomorrow. And um, I'm actually going to an art studio downtown on my motorcycle tonight, so wish me luck on getting back. The snow is supposed to be coming in. And uh, all of you all of you folks may or may not have class on Wednesday. If you have class on Wednesday, hand it in on Wednesday. Definitely start reading the next book, all right? I don't know what the next one is. The Dispossessed. The Dispossessed. That's a great one. Ursula. So, uh, the next book, start reading that. I may see you on Wednesday if the school is here. Otherwise, And if it is, hand in the assignment. Otherwise, I'll see you on Monday.